0: Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined with the star of our show here, Sal Marinello. And this is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. This is episode 152 uh, for our production. And before we get going with with Sal, just want to thank our faithful audience. Close to 15,000 subscribers. We just eclipsed 14,900 this morning. I think by the end of the weekend, we'll be up there. So a big milestone for us. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. Make sure you stream us on your favorite streaming app, whether it's Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. We don't care; uh, we get credit for it anyway. But we appreciate what you've been doing with us. It allows us to give you great content every week and bring on great guests. Make sure to continue to follow Sal, and he'll give you he'll give you his thoughts on how to get in touch with him. And also hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I answer a question of the day live, and then I answer the rest of them. Following that, we had close to 400 questions this morning. Sal, part of it from our show yesterday. I mentioned we did an impromptu show yesterday with uh, with my son Tanner as kind of a spotlight, and uh, discussed our our homeschool philosophies and what he's doing in sports with two sport athletes and how he prepares and and whatnot. And uh, that that was an offshoot of the question yesterday, which which asked me about uh, some things about high agency first principle concepts with kids. And I used Kung Fu Panda as an example of, of uh, high agency first principle, first principle, meaning he has no input to, to worry about. He's a self teacher. So that music was from Kung Fu Panda, um, was not by me. So, but, uh, with that eclectic introduction right there, so I want to welcome you, you back to your show and I know you've had a, uh, an interesting week this week, to say, the, to say the least. You're always moving around, traveling. you got a number of different athletes, but uh, you had a certain incident in, in your world that uh, you had to endure this week. So with all that being said, we're glad you could be here on the show today.
1: Yeah, real quick, I'll just touch base because it's it's um, a reminder of how crazy life can be. And, you know, you're taking care of yourself and doing all these things, and something out of the blue crops up. Real quick, Dave, I had an insignificant little cut on the middle finger of my left hand up towards the, between the cuticle and the top knuckle. Again, I can't overstate how insignificant this cut was. And Saturday coming back from my son's game in Baltimore, I'm on the Amtrak train and I had had it at the end of the week and I noticed it and it was, you know, I just like, okay, when I'm opening the sliding the door open on the train, my hand just like lightly glanced against the side of the, the door jam. And this is after I had the cut and I looked and it hurt like heck. It hurt way out of proportion to this little glancing blow. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh, that doesn't look like it's healing properly. Now this is Saturday, late afternoon, early evening. And I'm thinking to myself, I'll get some cream on it when I get home. And if it looks bad Monday, I'm going to go see somebody. So fast forward to Sunday as it's getting a little worse and I have stuff on it. And um, My finger now looks like it's swollen, and my plan is to certainly go to see someone on Monday. Well, I go to bed, and it's gotten to the point where it's swollen, and it's throbbing, and it looks kind of bad, and I'm worried. So I drive myself to the emergency room, and now I'm going to really go into Cliff Notes mode. They gave me something. It didn't work. I wound up going back early the next morning, uh, about 9 o'clock, got admitted, had IV drip. While they determined what it was, and it wasn't, I wasn't uh, released until Wednesday, and it was after having you know almost constant IV drip, having a uh, hand surgeon come in and open up the wound so it could drain, and um, then getting about my day. But it's just again amazing to think something so insignificant and out of our control could become so potentially dire in such a short period of time. And while we do talk about how traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals have kind of let us down. There's reminders of the good things that we still can take advantage of because without the antibiotics that they were able to give me, this is something that, you know, you're dead from in a pretty short period of time. Certainly, you know, certainly going to have an altered lifespan. Uh, So I just wanted to talk about that and just uh, be glad that I'm back here. And have been able to work out and get back to my routine without any lingering side effects.
0: Yeah, that's and that kind of threads from what we talked about each of the last you know three four weeks kind of leads into it. And is that a form of MRSA staph infection? What what was the diagnosis? If I you didn't know how to share, if you don't, they, know. they
1: didn't. No, they didn't. They were afraid it was this MRSA superbug, which you're in deep deep stuff from. It was just a basic staph infection. And, you know, for whatever reason, it latched on. You know, Dave, one of the things I was worried about is because it wasn't, not that anyone to—is going to walk around with a big cut on their arm, but because it was such a minor first thing, my worry was with the blood work they did, they were going to find something else to explain why my immune system might have been so compromised that this minor, tiny cut was going to result in this kind of an infection. But all the blood work was great. Never spread beyond the, um, into my system. There was no nothing of it in my blood. I had a CAT scan on my hand. It had done no damage to my hand. So all things were good. Blood pressure, great. Resting heart. And, and despite the stress and the pain, my blood pressure was great, which was nice to see. But um, it was a basic staph infection. It was not the MRSA superbug, which they might have, they were afraid of.
0: Well, I'm glad you're you're better, and uh, you know, to the audience, I I didn't hear about this really until I mean, I think you texted me just a little bit about it yesterday. So, um, so I, I'm sorry you went through that, and certainly appreciate you playing hurt. Yeah, well, you
1: know what? What what I will say, Dave, it does. I guess it's it is somewhat of a tribute to if you're you know taking care of yourself, you you can recover and have these instances where you're not. Sick. The thing that was, you know, maddening about being in the hospital was I felt fine. You know, I'm taking up a, a hospital bed, and I really didn't need to be. Uh, I wish I could have gotten this treatment without needing to, you know, be in the hospital because there are not, you know, you don't want to be in a hospital if you don't have to be, and you're also taking the bed of someone who might need it. But uh, that being said, if that's the worst thing I go through, uh, I'll deal with it, and it's a reminder that you really should keep yourself as fit as possible, so you do not have to spend time in a hospital.
0: Yeah, I was going to kind of ask that question, too. Do you think the way you keep yourself up physically, the way you eat, uh, the way you keep your mind up, do you think that had a lot to do with your quicker recovery or maybe not succumbing to the particular bug they thought it would be?
1: No, no doubt. And over my career, I've worked with, unfortunately, they've had cancer, several patients who trained with me, throughout their treatments, not just their recovery, but radiation, chemo, etc., et because they had done regular workouts with me and through their diagnosis and treatments, they wanted to stay themselves, if that makes sense. They wanted to have control over their lives to the point where they wanted to do the things that made them felt good. And I had great, and these, people all had great responses from their treatments through that. So there's never been research that I've seen in any area that shows exercise is detrimental or taking care of yourself is detrimental. So, you know, you get these constant reminders that you should do it. So that's that's what this
0: shows me. Yeah, and we're, we're all fallible. We all We all can get sick or injured or hurt at some point in time, but – the better prepared you are with your daily life, the way you live, you know, the better chance you have of not just sustaining it, but recovering as quickly as you did. So we're, we're glad that you're healthy. I wish uh, Major League Baseball pitchers were as healthy as you. We'll get to that. But did you get a chance to appreciate opening day yesterday at all?
1: Well, I was catching up on work. So I, I actually did have the TV on here. And don't get me wrong, I'm not happy that it was not a good outing, but I saw deGrom not look good and I, I wasn't sure if he got an out in the top of the fifth, so I didn't know what his line actually wound up, but I saw he was out in the top of the fifth and did not look good. Um I saw obviously the Met issue with Verlander having a rotate that's a rotator cuff injury. That's you know, now I guess they have better diagnostics so they could drill down to the specific muscle of the rotator cuff. And if you want, Dave, we could talk about that. I know I shared that in, in a text yesterday with you guys.
0: Yeah, I think that would be helpful to our audience because we have a lot of young kids out there, a lot of college, a lot of pro pro pitchers and, and even coaches that listen to us. And, you know, you, you see the symptoms, you see the, you know, you'll hear, you hear the forearm strain, you'll hear the lat, and, you know, all that leads to to negative uh, things when it deals with the rotator. But you broke it down pretty uh pretty nice and neat in that text message. Yeah. That'd be great to share. I think with our audience.
1: So the injury to Verlander, they said, well, and let's just take a step back. I think we're seeing just the beginning of this pitch clock effect. That's going to be whether or not they're going to talk about that in direct relationship to these injuries. I'm just willing to say that you're going to see injuries from the pitch clock, both on both sides, but specifically with pitchers, the Terrace, major is one of the four muscles that make up the rotator cuff and the rotator cuff is kind of a really dynamic multi-purpose group of muscles so you can remember it this way Dave the four muscles the acronym is SITS S-I-T-S you have the supraspinatus the infraspinatus the teres major and the subscapularis so there's your S-I-T-S And they're like four fingers that wrap around or cover your shoulder blade and are responsible and are responsible for everything from extension, rotation, internal rotation, stabilization. And they tie in with helping the lat and the lats function as a stabilizer. So it's the nexus of the shoulder and what needs to be strong and work properly if someone's gonna pitch.
0: Yeah. And Berlander, what did they diagnose him? They just flat out just kind of blanketed it as rotator. And
1: no, he- they said it was Terrace Major, which it's interesting that they are coming out and saying that it's that specific thing because there's such a synergistic arrangement with how those muscles work. It's in, it, while that might be the inflamed or the affected muscle. It's it's an imbalance balance issue here. We're talking about it. It's coming from something now. I don't know enough about his mechanics. Uh, Obviously, he's always been considered to have, from people I've read, as good of a mechanical setup as there is in baseball. Um, But he is coming off the Tommy John surgery and obviously had a great year last year. But it's that drip, drip, drip effect. You don't know what maybe minor adjustments he's made. And again, I don't, don't know what these guys are doing in the weight room, which in my opinion is always going to be the thing that is the fly in the ointment.
0: Yeah. He, well, he had an injury early on when he was with Detroit and came back from that. He had to adjust his mechanics a little bit, become a different kind of pitcher. And we've seen him flourish since then. And he's had almost, this will be kind of career number three for him. Uh, went down with that more recent injury. And then now this was, you know, for, he's an aging pitcher. He's got a lot of miles on that arm and a lot of miles yeah. on his legs. So I'm curious to see how he recovers from that. And that's another big loss for the Mets, right there. Is they lost their their closer in the World Baseball Classic with that goofy celebration that they did. Um, they lose Verlander. Obviously, they have Scherzer, but Verlander was a big piece to there. Where the Mets, arguably before the injuries, had the best rotation in baseball.
1: Well, it's amazing how quickly things change. And unfortunately, as a lifelong Met fan, you get used to these disappointments and whatever else, however else you want to refer to it. Um, but it's not it's not fun being a Met fan.
0: Yeah, I was. I didn't want to jab at that. You know, eh. Mets it should be used to it. But it, the, it uh, across across town, I don't know if you caught that. They the Yankees finally, um, I guess, supported one of their young guys. Anthony Volpe came in and won the starting shortstop job. He's one of the youngest starting players in the history of baseball, especially with the Yanks. They have that history of Jeter and Mantle and DiMaggio, and you know Judge wasn't. Too young when he came up. I think he was mid twenties, but um, started as short. Had a stolen base, and we had I think that my I think Tanner told me there was twenty seven stolen bases yesterday in uh, in Major League Baseball, which is a pretty high number as of late. So maybe the games changing a little bit.
1: Well, I mean that's got to. I don't know, and maybe we'll see the breakdown of the stack. But how many of those were after the pitcher had thrown over twice? That that's, that's got to be something, right? You're an analytics Dave, uh, an yeah. analytics guy wouldn't that be the first stat you want to see?
0: It's a great point. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, to be honest. Um, I just got excited that they're stealing bases again, but no, it's a, I think that's a, it's a, it could be broken down first, you know, how much, how many of them are going on, you know, before the look, how many are going after one, how many are going after two. And yeah, I think that that should, uh, and, and the bigger base obviously gives them a little bit of an advantage now. And, you know, so yeah, I think those are, those are three breakdowns that should be taken into consideration as, Stolen bases are happening. I noticed it first because Volpe got on and ran, and the Yankees don't usually run. And he got a stolen base his first time on base yesterday. So, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great point. I think I'm taking note of that. I'm going to take a look at that today.
1: I would love to see that breakdown. I don't think off the top of my head, I don't think there could be a better stat to illustrate the effect of a rule change on a sport than that. So that'll be, I, I want to definitely see that. And I, I don't know if we talked about this, but Volpe grew up in the town – where I live, and uh, he's close to the age of my sons. He He's in between my oldest and my youngest, I believe. Yes, he's in between them. He was always a private school kid, but I will tell you, Dave, from the time he was a little eager, he was on the radar as being that good. So, yeah. man, I hope, you know, I hope the, you, that you're a little young, but I don't know if you remember, you know, when Bobby Mercer came up, he was supposed to replace Mantle, and that kind of put a – unfair burden on him I th- always thought and I've heard that as well so I hope the same thing doesn't happen with the Jeter connection or comparison here uh yeah with Volpe and because he's such a young guy and he's had such great success at um high school and in the minors so uh we'll it'll, it'll be fun to watch I hope he, you know obviously everyone's pulling for him here I can't tell you how many Volpe shirts you're going to see here. That'll probably be the most popular jersey be- between the Yankee fans and where I am is, you know, obviously going to be pulling for him because if he's from there, it's
0: going to be great to see. Yeah, and he, he played high school baseball with Jack Leiter, who's Al Leiter's son, and yep. Jack uh, with Texas, I believe, now. Tremendous pitcher for Vanderbilt. And Volpe, uh, you know, they put a little bit of pressure on him. He is he wearing number 11, which is the next number in the series of retired numbers for the Yankees. They ran out of single digits uh, and they've even, even duplicated it Mercer being one of them Billy Martin and Bobby Mercer both wore number 1 I don't know if you remember you know I do remember the Mercer Mercer coming up but Mickey Mantle went through the same thing he was brought up to be the replacement for Joe DiMaggio and had the uh, I guess fortune and misfortune of playing alongside of him and he struggled uh, they gave him number 6 he was back down in the minors uh, within a few weeks struggling and it was almost out of baseball the story goes where he was Called his dad to come pick him up. And his dad told him, I thought, I raised a man. Um, get your suitcase and pack. We're going home. He was back in AAA struggling. So uh, we know what happened to Mick after that. He never went home with dad. He stayed. You yeah, yeah. can work in the coal mines like I do every day.
1: It worked uh, out pretty well for him. But you're right. Those comparisons were tougher then. I think now the only solace these guys get is they're getting paid. So if it doesn't work out, they've got money. Whereas back then – you know, you're going to, like you said you're gonna go in the coal mine or selling cars, or
0: you know they were still selling stuff in the offseason, even though they were getting paid yeah to, um and a volpe i, I like the story I don't know if you saw Brett Gardner, I always liked Gardner with the Yankees. I thought he was a hard nosed guy um always a little unorthodox was throwing the swinging, but he 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 brought energy and every year they talked about you know bringing in somebody to, to to bump him out of his spot, and every year he ended up being a mainstay so But uh, Volpe's wearing number 11, which is Gardner's old number, and he had the respect level to give Brett Gardner a call and ask him if it was okay.
1: Well, that's great. Well, you know, again, I don't know the kid, but I'm assuming where we live is Yankee country. I'm I'm assuming he's a big Yankee fan. And knowing that baseball, again, from people who were in the baseball, I was very involved with sports in my town, but my kids never played baseball, so I didn't have that uh, firsthand knowledge but the guys, the dads I knew who were involved, they were always all about baseball. And I'm sure he has a healthy respect not only for the game in general, but for the Yankee tradition. So, again, it's, it's great that it's worked out. I, I hope it continues to work out for him.
0: Yeah. New great Jersey, story yeah. if it does. Oh, he's, it's, it's like it's written in stone. I mean, it's, it's as if it was written before and it's, it's just going to happen. He played a great shortstop yesterday, I thought. Ran the bases well, hit well. Good approach. They got him hitting in the nine hole right now, which, again, a little bit lower pressure. Uh, he's, you know, seeing probably more fastballs uh, in that spot. And it, it makes him – I guess he can be a little loose right now, not worry about offense and just just defend. But he won for three. It's a good start for him. And seems like a kid that's going to make it. So I'm, I'm rooting for him, too, with that. But, you know, back on the injury front, uh, you talked about Verlander. Tristan McKenzie is uh, supposed to be a staff ace this year, one of them anyway, with Cleveland – Little slender, different build than, than the typical major league pitcher. He's probably six three, and he may weigh a buck sixty five. Uh, went down with a lat injury, so we're seeing a lot of these pitchers go down right up to the point of you know uh, opening day. Do you think it has some? You mentioned it had something to do with the shot clock or the pitch clock. Do you, you think it has to do with that?
1: Well, the pitch clock, the pitch clock is definitely going to contribute. But when you have these guys always throwing for velocity the lat again is a um a stabilizer of the shoulder and you're putting pressure on a stabilizer that that's why this you're seeing the lat the lat more so than the rotator cuff group of injury of muscles versus the elbow you're seeing the different those different injuries are due to different factors i think the lat that we're seeing and the one that always reminds me of this syndrome is Syndergaard that he had the lat before he had the blowout. So, cause he's always in search of that velocity.
0: It makes sense. So and that's kind of a message we've talked about on a number of our different shows. So the, the change in pitching philosophy, the, you know, it's, it's power or bust same with the hitting too. I mean, it's power or bust in that regard as well. So the, the explosiveness that they're trying to perform at, and now they're controlling the, the recovery time, You you think that is that kind of what you're saying that 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 is a uh, those two things together are going to cause more injuries?
1: Yeah, I mean, in in any sport, think about any sport where you're fundamentally changing the time between repetitions, plays, whatever, even if it was your training, you know, your training session. If you're used to resting 90 seconds between sets and now you're going to rest a minute that completely changes the, the nature of your workout. And if you were to do it at an intense level and go from one day you're doing it with the way you've been doing it your whole life and you basically you're going into it where you're pretty much immediately making that change, that's a huge change to make. And especially with the delicate, uh, a delicate mo- motion, like the throwing motion.
0: Yeah, w- without that. Violent approach to it. It's it's if anybody ever got a chance to see the the bones and the muscles moving in one of those breakdown videos, no parent would ever let their kid pitch. I mean, it's it's uh, frightening to watch the the muscles stretch and the bones move apart and the ligaments and tendons. So, is I mean, basically they're maxing out every time they throw the ball, and if they're throwing 85 pitches a game, regardless of the pitch it'd be like going in the weight room and maxing out and resting 20 seconds and maxing out and doing that 80 times. I mean, eventually
1: it would be like doing your 40 and then coming right back and doing your 40 at max speed where you're running a four, two and you're resting 30 seconds and you're going again. That basically, I don't know that, but that we were talking about that same kind of fundamental change to the nature of the, and to the environment, that's a huge environmental change that has been I think downplayed. It, I don't I haven't again, i try I try not to read too much because you could go crazy with the pundits. I don't know if anyone has brought that up about how much of a change that is to the nature of the game beyond the game, not just the game itself, but the individual, how it affects the the athlete. it's I don't know if I could think of something.
0: As big of a change, uh, can you think of something? You know, it, it wouldn't be the same as any type of shot clock thing in other sports, or you know, no. play clock, whatnot. Um, just because of the violent motion, I, 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 I'm actually going to talk a little bit later today with Justin Ornduff. He's been on uh, our show twice now. At one of our other on our coaching Kernan show, and also uh, a day at the yard. And he is into studying this stuff, and and he he'll, he'll he and I will correspond. Pretty much daily or every other day by text message, but we're going to have a call this today. And he's got some interesting numbers he's going to present to me with the Yankees. And we just kind of—it's kind of our own little think tank. We just kind of talk out loud, and and uh, I'm going to bring that up to him because I'm thinking he's looking into it already. The pitch clock, as it pertains to injuries, He'll study- well, I would
1: love to be in on one of your conversations. I'd love to talk to somebody like that because uh, that's one of the things that's missing in all of the analysis we see across the board in all of sport. Yeah, the injuries and the recoveries and all everything related to injuries. Well, there's a bunch of things that are missing, but that's one area now we're focusing on is missing from any critical analysis of sport. We, we, you could watch games. I'm sure you watch these post game, pre game shows, and sometimes I'm stuck watching them. I don't do it by choice, but the inanity, how it devolves into the the things that really are pseudo important versus really important. We're missing this real analysis that it would be super interesting to speak to someone that has that angle and and to be able to contribute to him and to learn from him. I would love to get that opportunity.
0: Oh yeah. And I'll I'll connect the two of you. His, his backstory, he was, he was a top draft pick and he, his career ended early. And the doctor, when he had the surgery, when he when he woke up from it, you know, he asked a very pointed question. Justin did, and he said, "You are pitching injuries are a byproduct of your improper training." And he's devoted his life right now to solving that problem for others. And he's he's uh, very scientific with his approach, but he's got the feel for baseball, and, and he's a major player in Verlander's uh, approach to pitching. So him, him and Verlander are very close. And they, uh, he, had, he 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 talks to him, advised him, has helped him. But he's he's helped a number of amateur pitchers and you know pro pitchers. His uh, he's very well thought out, very self aware. But his drive is his own issue, and that he had as a, as a young player coming through. And what could I what could I have done differently? What did I what was I missing? What did I what I wish I had? And uh, he he studies that the way people throw, the way they use pitchers, and how that uh, prevents pitchers from throwing longer and. He is a proponent of what we are. He doesn't believe in max velocity. Um, he believes in, you know, throwing strikes and getting outs and, and throwing, being healthier and throwing longer as opposed to harder. And in his study that he's done and his approach to pitching, my two, my older son, uh, David, who we call Blue, and my oldest daughter, Peyton, who's um, 11, they're both pitchers, Peyton pitches, plays baseball, and they both use Justin's program. I do not let people coach my kids in that regard. Um, he is somebody that I trust wholeheartedly. So we've, we've dived into his program and it has been phenomenal for the two kids. It's not cookie cutter. Um, we absolutely love it uh, with Tanner. I, I really did. Tom Griffin and Jeff Schaefer have been in, uh, have been big influences on him that I've allowed to. So I'm very, I'm very like cautious with people putting their hands on my kids with that stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. The, the, but Justin's been phenomenal for the, the two kids. And actually he's helped Tanner out with his release as a catcher. And uh just a little this like one or two minor things with body position that has made a whole heck of a lot of difference with his, his release and his velocity thrown down. So
1: well those minor uh, things are not minor because the those are the things that set up the larger movement. Yeah. So it would be it would be like if you built a bridge and your foundation was incorrect at some in some minor way. Well that minor way is gonna have massive ramifications down the road and that's the same thing here. I see it working with my uh football player who's a wide receiver and the not not just uh misguided I'm I'm trying to qualify or or, or describe the information he's been given about how to do certain things. It's flat it goes flat out against every movement principle about how you move efficiently. So there's so much Bad information that circulates through the coaching ranks uh, under the guise of your technique, which is absolutely opposed to proper movement so it's just it's it's an interesting thing one one last thing on this subject before we move on, an unintended consequence of this pitch clock could be guys are now going to be taught how to throw and how to pitch instead of just gassing it. Because you're going to recognize, realize that you're not going to be able to throw as hard as you can every 15 or 20 seconds. And you're going to need to know how to pitch. So maybe if out of this comes an effort to take these young guys with great arms and say, hey, you know what, with this rest in between pitches, you're never going to be able to throw 98 through six innings. Let's dial you back and show you how to pitch. And maybe we'll get a few more Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Justin Verlander's Greg Maddox's and a whole lot less Noah Syndergaard's.
0: Yeah, I, I, I hope so too. And Justin's program, I think proves that if you build the foundation properly, that velocity comes naturally and it's the same with hitting, you become a good hitter first. And if you're a good hitter, then you develop power, but rarely do big power hitters become great hitters in terms of average and contact. So um, we had talked before about going into the this this whole QB debate, quarterback debate with the NFL draft. Interesting prospects this year. You want to dive into that a little bit today? With
1: yeah,
0: hit it with the so so Bryce Young, Alabama quarterback, has you know done anything and everything he can as a as a college player. There's a big issue right now with his his size. He's five ten. Uh, I think he weighs about a buck eighty five. When he weighed in at the combine, he weighed in at two o four, but I'm sure that was manufactured weight it's uh you know he did it for the like we say the combine is just like a dog and pony show but um has done everything he can as a college quarterback projects well in terms of skills as an NFL quarterback but historically there's never been a quarterback that small drafted in the first round um especially number 1 overall i believe carolina's got the pick this year what are your thoughts on that i mean when you i know i know your thoughts on combines and Standard size and speeds and things like that. It's more about skill and ability, but something like that—a Bryce Young, Alabama quarterback, projects well, but because of height and weight, people are saying stay away.
1: Well, I think one of the things that jumps out to me is there is a prejudice against smaller players. So the fact that there the the teams were using a misguided had a misguided approach to size, doesn't really mean anything to me because you will go back and you watched Doug Flutie. He had a great pro career and was the victim of circumstances, and I think was the victim of mismanagement from his coaching. I think if Bryce Young projects and he has can make the throws as the as the uh, phrase is, and has the arm talent as the other annoying that's the annoying phrase. I hate that. I
0: hate that I hate that so.
1: But if he has those things, then he should play and I would pick him. the The problem is you can't run him like you ran Lamar Jackson and let's hope we' he he can you know get healthy and play full seasons and be productive. But the history of smaller guys not being resilient, is certainly something to be concerned with. So, if you're going to run this kid at that size, then he's not a first round pick. If, if you're going to put him in a situation where you're building a team so he could do the same things he did and can do the things that highlight his talent, then you're fine. It would be, you know, it's, a, it's again, I like to use ludicrous comp, uh, comparisons to make a point. If Tom Brady was in a, in a scheme where he had a run and they had to move the pocket, he wouldn't be Tom Brady. So why would you take a kid who has these other great skills and then subject him to a system that made less of what he could do? So the size thing doesn't bother me. If if he truly can throw and can truly do those things and has the the mindset and read defenses and do those things, there's no reason he can't be successful. Doug Flutie – didn't get beat up, and he played a lot of football, and I don't care if it was Canada or it was down in the NFL. At the end of his career, he was still productive here. He didn't get beat up because he was small. So I think that's – they're building upon their prejudice against size or, quote, lack of size is the reason no one's been picked. I don't think it has to do with true ability. That's my feeling on that.
0: Yeah, and there's been guys his height, you know, the uh, Russell Wilson, he was drafted later, though five ten. Kyler Murray recently, you know, five ten as well. Drew Brees they consider smaller. He was still six feet tall, but um, I agree with you. I think you know, there's if you try to put a square into a circle hole, it's not going to fit. And if they're going to run young, he's going to get beat up uh, quite a bit. But I think he's I, he he looks to be able to play the part. My thought is too, and I'm not a quarterback, never been. He's going to be throwing behind guys six five and six six is. You know, is that his extra two or three inches? Is that an issue? They don't seem to be talking about the height as much as they do the weight.
1: Well, the weight, I think, is a sign of some resiliency issues. But again, what are you asking him to do? You know, linemen are getting bigger. There's quarterbacks who are six five who have low deliveries. They get they get passes batted. So there's things you do to. uh to allow for maybe some of the things that he's not great at, just like any quarterback. The quarterback who can't be mobile has to have other things at his disposal. You have to do other things around him. So it, I'm not saying he sh- he sh- he's going to be successful, but if you're telling me the only thing he has that's a that's the negative is he's a little undersized, then I don't think that's as, as much of a negative if, as it should be and as everyone's making it out to be. Yeah.
0: No, I was that way as a coach. I, and again, you're, I'm a little prejudiced to it because I was considered undersized as a college basketball player and even as a professional baseball player. And I always asked recruits who were dubbed too small, is your height or weight a problem for you? And if it wasn't, then I said, "Then no, that's not a problem for me. Let's figure out how to make it work. If a kid can play, they can play. Um, it's a matter, like you said, using them in the right spot. Now they've, they've got a couple other guys like Anthony Richardson. I don't know if you're familiar with him from Florida. Yeah. He- he was a draft or a, a combine darling. I mean, they loved him. He's six foot four, you know, just the opposite 64 235 pound, just chiseled runs like you wouldn't believe. Um, looks like a, a monster back and the scouts are just drooling over him right now. He, you know, he threw for 24 touchdowns over his career against 15 interceptions. So that doesn't bode well since college receivers are usually wide open, but he only's had eleven, I think eleven career starts, and you know, so that's not a lot. He still's got a lot to go. What about something like that? That boomer bust, looking at a, you know, just a stud body, athleticism, and I hate the word potential. It's always that. That should be a four letter word. It's what would get you fired. But um, what are your thoughts on someone like that evolving into an NFL quarterback?
1: Well, I think we're talking about two different things. You're talking about someone who really. Does have potential and didn't live up to it in college at a high level. Now, Florida's win loss record aside, that that's a high level. He's playing at a high level. You know, regard even Vanderbilt, who struggles in the SEC, that's high level football. So you can gauge the chances of someone being successful. Now he certainly has all the tools, but what what I would say is when you look at his game by game stats where physically he had to be one of the most dominating players on the field in every game. There were games against teams that were not on their level that he still didn't dominate. So I, I don't see that you could take a guy. I wouldn't want my team or be on a position where I'd take him and think he's going to be my starting quarterback in a year or two. But he's certainly worth taking and working with. But the problem is these combine darlings, whether they get it put in their head from their, re, from their results of that or from their handlers, their team, that they should be a number one pick. I think that that's the problem. Some guys get into that trap where they, they've been fed this that they think they're going to be or they should be a, a number one pick slash starting player based on some combine numbers when they didn't show anything in their actual play that would warrant it then that I think that changes the player's perspective which could be a problem.
0: Yeah, and he and when you look at him he looks like a linebacker. He's that big and he wouldn't be out of place running the combine drills at that particular spot. But I agree it's you know they're looking at the mobility, the speed, the strength and the accuracy part is unknown right now because he hasn't played the position long enough. Um, but yeah, it's probably one of those wait and see things. But he's being talked about with that number one pick, as they, they all do. Anytime I hear someone as a number one pick, I know it's probably not going to happen because usually these front office people are putting false flags out there. For yeah, other-
1: that's true. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. But I just go and look at some of these games he had. If you go back and look at his game by game, you know, there's not, nothing jumps out at you like, wow. You know, even in some of the games they won and scored a lot of points, like they beat uh, South Florida, he was 10 of 18 for 112 yards. So in a game where he had to be clearly the most dominant physical player on the field, he's not doing anything to really show that dominance. Yeah, I, well, That's well, just me. I mean, and, and I, I, I'm not saying he's not going to be a quarterback in the pros. I'm just saying I'm not taking a first-round pick on a guy who still has a lot of growth. You know, remember Rick Meyer, he was a great college quarterback. Notre and- Dame. Again, guys who know more than me always said that if you weren't accurate in college, and now he played a lot more in college than than Richardson had, but if you're not accurate coming out of college, like you said, where guys are open and you have a much more physical dominant relationship in some of these situations, you're not going to all of a sudden get accurate when the game is faster, the players are better, you have more to consider. So that's, to me, I have always looked at that based on what other experts have said. So...
0: And on the other side of that, no, you got the Ohio State, former Ohio State quarterback, CJ Stroud. Looks the part, looks the traditional part of the quarterback as well. As 6'3, 220, you know, a little bit more slender than um, you know, than the kid from Florida, but high accuracy rate. Um, again, hard to judge, but pretty much close to seventy percent uh, completion rate, eighty-five to twelve touchdown to interception ratio, played some high-level games. Uh, he's got the pre- precision of a, well, you, you, your generation me, of a jugs machine. I mean, he just looks like, boom, shoots it right out of there. Yeah, um, You know, he, he was a transfer also, like all these kids. I think he was at Georgia originally. And uh, imagine that, Georgia having him. But uh, th- thoughts on him. Uh, I mean, he had a great college career, um, you know, played in a lot of the big games, looks the part, has mobility, but is a pocket quarterback. Where, where would you put him with those three that we talked about?
1: Well, you know what? I I mean, I don't pretend to be an expert. My sense is if the right team drafts the right player and puts him in the right situation, that makes all the difference. If you look at Daniel Jones, he finally had a coaching staff that knew what to do with him, and he had time to develop into this quarterback that, you know, maybe they put him out there too early, and that was unfair to him because of the needs of the team. So these guys – all showed that they could play high-level football to a certain degree. It's a matter of can they fulfill their potential. I think there's so much, Dave, left to chance in this that these teams and football in general likes to present themselves as having this advanced system and they know how things are going to pan out. But when you look at the track record, it doesn't work out that way. So I think oh, what, what, what you look backwards at, and say, you have to look backwards and say, the guys who the guys who wind up in the right situation – are the guys who do the best. Now, sometimes guys break down physically. You could say Carson Wentz, he was in the right place at the right time at the right point of his career until he got hurt and then the wheels fell off the wagon and now he's considered no good, damaged goods. Look at a guy like Kirk Cousins who was drafted the same year that RG3 was and RG3 was the revolutionary player because they were running a college-style offense with his ability to run and throw and yet... RG three has been out of the league for three or four years, and Kirk Cousins is still a, a productive, high-level player despite the fact that he was a fourth or fifth or sixth-round draft pick. So, on the same team, because Cousins made his uh, ultimately made it at the a, as a quarterback in Washington.
0: Yeah.
1: Whatever happened there was the circumstances were better for him than it was for RG three, and there's a great example of treating a Porsche like a snowplow. And how they ruined RG3. Go! I forgot. I went back and looked at RG3's college highlights. It was magnificent to see him play because he, he really kind of came out of nowhere and had that, meant, that amazing season where he won the Heisman and yeah. had that amazing start in Washington until they beat the stuffing out of him because they were running the, the zone read. And he just was not built for that. You can't do that all the time. And you're seeing even bigger guys – Lamar Jackson is the greatest comparison who is a bigger version of RG3 who is still now showing signs of breaking down. The 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 thing I'd worry about if I was a Bears fan and I have a buddy of mine who is a Bears fan and we talk about this all the time is Justin Fields has obviously shown he can be a fantastic dynamic quarterback in the NFL, but he is not going to be if he continues to run like he's had to run these last couple of seasons and oh, taking the pounding that he's been taking.
0: Running for his life. Yeah, like that. And what's interesting, I think, I believe, and I may be wrong. I think Cousins did they not get drafted both by the same team? Cousins Cousins and RG three. Yeah, they were both drafted by Washington. RG three was the top pick, and Cousins was fourth,
1: fifth, sixth, somewhere in there. I think he might have been fifth or sixth.
0: Yeah, he was late, really late, and Cousins was older. Um, You know, he had he had been around a little bit longer, and he's he's had a nice nice career with them. I know I agree with you. RG three was, I think, believe he was rookie of the year his first year and he also made a pro bowl. So it wasn't like he just washed out, but yeah, using your guys properly. So I I, I'll leave, I'll leave leave you on this right here, ask your, your opinion. And I know you, you, you know, very, uh, you know, diplomatics that you're not a, you know, football expert or whatnot, but you, you are as, as good a person I know in terms of performance, the quarterback is probably the most, um, messed up draft situation In any sport, and it it could arguably be the most important position in any sport around, but nobody has still been able to put a finger on how to predict uh, or develop, you know, the sure thing, let's say Um, it's this, it's the most poorly drafted position in any sport. And what would, what would you advise if you were brought in as a performance coach to help advise on the draft? What would you be looking for or be telling some of these guys so they don't make another multi-billion dollar mistake?
1: Well, first of all I want to say something in general about the quarterback and you said in in all of sport. I think in our society in whether it's business, you know, the family structure, obviously there's cases of the father dying in a family and that throwing the family into turmoil. And that might be an insensitive analogy, but really in no other case can I think of you take away that starting quarterback I don't think any other case has such a drastic effect on the operations of the organization whether it be another team in another sport whether it be a business whatever field you want to look at and there's I don't know what it is Dave because college is based on a different situation there's college teams that you, you're on the third quarterback sometimes, and that team doesn't miss a step, whereas in, in the pros, you see that second-team guy, and it, things fall off, fall off the wagon. So there's something about how football is structured at the pro level that you're looking for this unicorn, almost, type character, type figure to run your team, to lead your team. Obviously, there are a few exceptions. You had Minnesota. You had the Eagles. where You were down to your third-string quarterback. Sounds I think I think those are the exceptions that prove the rule. You know, for every New York Giant that had Jeff team that had Jeff Hostetler to take the Giants to the Super Bowl that lost Phil Sims. you have the team that had the, the star quarterback, you know, the Tom Brady, who tore his ACL with the Super Bowl team and hit the skids when their quarterback came in. Even though they did pretty well, it wasn't anywhere near the same thing. Um, so that's one thing, but. Past injury, if, if we're talking about my realm, past injury predicts future injury. So anyone who's had any kind of major injury, ACL, even super severe ankle sprains like Tua, who had that super severe high ankle sprain and they did that surgical procedure that got him back in two weeks or whatever it was, then he, that, those things would make a guy off limits to me. When you're talking about what that pick represents, that first pick. To me, that's that's the ultimate. What's his physical health? What has, what's his injury history?
0: No, I like that. I, I, you know, I don't know what they get caught up in. There's all these scientific ways, quote unquote, that they they approach this process to, and it is the most screwed up draft position in any sport. And it, like you said, it could be the most important position in whether it's a family structure or a business or a sport. And I, I tend to agree. It's it's challenging, and uh, that may be another project we do. We've got one on stealing bases, the mechanics of it. We've got these two analytics projects we're going to work on with base stealing and the pitch clock with injury. And this may be our most lucrative uh, venture right here if we can figure out the quarterback problem. But well, we may we may have a lot of business in that.
1: I mean, even look at the Mets. We just started off the show talking about Verlander's injury. That that while it's a huge blow, that doesn't automatically. Take them Mets out of contention. It just is going to make that road tougher. It's not as if now they're done, done, and you're you're putting a, a fork in them. Whereas if that is, if Aaron Rodgers comes to the Jets and he tears his Achilles in the first game, then you could the Jets are another two win team. You're in for another two win season. So there is something about the this quarterback position, and and I don't know. Is there a, a is there a way to get away from that quarterback centric? model that can make more guys valuable at that position so you're not or more guys abil- able to play that position and run your team without falling apart without them I mean that's the thing so
0: and I, the I, thing. I, I like I would like to look at Shanahan's style because he did it with three quarterbacks this year and then maybe um maybe they're misevaluating it. it if, if I'm creating a word there but how does a guy like Brock Purdy just appear out of nowhere you know is it the system is it his makeup that people just didn't prioritize what he brings to the table or you know maybe a combination of both
1: I I think like I said I think there's these exceptions to the rule but at the same time I think there's also lightning in a bottle guys get hot at the right time the team rallies the team is good enough to do Mm -hmm. certain things your the stretch of your season is such that it allows you to hide some of the weaknesses and deficiencies. So all of those things combine to help. And, and, And I'll tell you, I'll go one more for you, Dave. As far as the 49ers go, again, no one wants to see anyone get hurt, but Trey Lance getting hurt would probably did the 49ers a favor because Garoppolo was probably the, should have been the starter there, but they had drafted this kid number one and he had to play. So yeah. that goes back to the point of the problem with drafting a guy that's too high, uh, drafting a guy too high that might not be ready to play.
0: So, yep, sunk cost fallacy. Well, we're really we, not.
1: You know, Purdy really wasn't your third string.
0: Yeah, no, he he could have been further down, also. But uh, so, thank you. I mean, appreciate you coming on. I know you had a had a rough week. Uh, I'm glad you recovered from it and shared with the audience a good reminder: stay healthy, eat healthy train your mind, train your body the right way, and you can recover from things like this more quickly and not have it affect you temporarily or, on, you know, God forbid, permanently. And, uh, share, share with the audience, uh, you know, where again, they can find you and support you.
1: Best place to find me is on Instagram, Coach Sal's Playmakers and on Twitter at Sal Marinello. That's what I keep up. My, I'm not going to even give my Substack because it's, I've, not been good with it. So I'm going to pick that up. And when I do, I'll start talking about it again, but let's go. You know, my Instagram is the best way to see everything I'm doing and almost a real time
0: kind of situation. Awesome. So continue to support Coach Sal there and uh, continue to support us, uh, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can find us streaming there. Uh, Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. We'll keep bringing you great content every week, especially on the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. We're on episode 152, I believe, today. And hit us up on social media. I'm on there now. They got me out of the cave. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, but I'm hitting Facebook hard with questions every day. I'll I'll answer everybody back by the end of the day, I promise you. But we got one up today, and it was actually our spotlight interview with Tanner yesterday to explain some of the homeschool model and the importance of two-sport athletes. So, um, Sal, thanks again for doing your show. It's always a ton of great information uh, for our audience, and I'll I'll, uh, look forward to having you next week. Look forward to it. Thanks, Dave. Have a good weekend.